Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, September 6, 2022. I'm John Butthorts, the editor of Commentary Magazine. We are almost two months away from the Commentary Roast of Barry Weiss, our uh, either 11th or 12th annual roast. I can never remember the, the number. Maybe it's 13. I think it's 11, but it could be 12. Barry Weiss Roast, great event, New York City, Sunday, November 13th. Be there or be square. Go to commentary.org slash roast for details. This is a fun, lively, sprightly evening, and it is our most important fundraiser of the year. We are a 501c3 nonprofit. We need the money we raise from the roast to continue presenting you with this daily podcast, as we need your subscription dollars as well. Uh, but in this case, go to commentary.org slash roast. It's a not a cheap ticket. Uh, it's a real commitment, but uh, we deliver value. We deliver immense amounts of value and a not bad dinner. It's pretty good. It's okay. It's kosher style. It's not kosher. I'm sorry to say, but we will provide kosher food for those who want it. And uh, and it's over. Like it's uh, famously over around nine nine fifteen, which is a name a name name a charity dinner you've ever been to that ends sooner than you would want it to end. This is. A miracle of planning, logistics, and conception. Commentary Roast to Barry Weiss, commentary.org slash roast. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Uh, media commentary columnist and American Enterprise Institute fellow, Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor and author of The Rise of the New Puritans, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Donald Trump has superpowers. This we now have to acknowledge. These are not the superpowers of, you know, a prophet or of, you know, of a of a of a Marvel character. It is the superpower of uh, injecting chaos at the at 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 moments that are unbelievably ad, um, advantageous to him. And this is what happened, I guess, on Friday when a judge uh, in Florida. Uh, acceded to his wishes and said not only that the uh, Department of Justice needed to appoint a special master to go through the 11,000 documents seized at uh, Mar-a-Lago uh, in the uh, in the warranted uh, search, um, but that uh, all investigation into the documents that were seized not these are just the ones seized in that warrant in that in that warranted search not the ones that were taken by agreement with trump and his lawyers earlier had they could not investigate them they could not ask questions relating to them they could not follow any investigative paths because of them and since that theoretically has already happened because the judge waited nine days to deliver her decision, uh, everything is now thrown into chaos. Because in theory, if her decision is upheld, any move the Justice Department might make in relation to these documents might now be considered inadmissible. Anybody who saw them may have to be taken off the case as having a prejudicial uh, having been prejudiced by information that they should not have been allowed to see. It is, and apparently uh, she has also taken up a very weird question relating to executive privilege that I barely even understand. So what this says to me is he's done it again. 
One exception, she is allowing the ongoing um, uh, examination of the documents from a national security perspective to see if there are any risks there. That is continuing to be allowed and that that's ongoing uh, okay. even as the other ones have stopped okay but in other words like there was all this like can you believe how bad trump was he didn't even object say there should be a special master at the very beginning that's what she should have done the night that they did the raid and he should have done this and why didn't they do that and they could have dotted this sign they could have crossed this t and in fact this is the best possible outcome for him the investigation is now totally shadowed unless the 11th circuit court of appeals completely you know like meets on bank very fast and overturns this uh decision um th there is now nobody knows what on earth is going to happen from here on in with this investigation which is not only frozen in place but may have to be uh retrogressed in a fashion that is very odd uh and so i say this has all worked out as well for Trump as it could have because it doesn't solve any problems, but it drives his opponents insane and slows everything down and mucks up the works, which also, is how it, he likes it. Okay. Also, it gives him an opening so somewhere in the in the future. Um, because if if the if if the person appointed now has to sort of determine what is um, what is sort of um, what is kosher in terms of uh, executive privilege and and whatever else. Um, there's the potential that that Trump's claims um, here can be somehow boosted, solidified. Um, he's not as as preposterous as, as some of his own claims had been sounding, um, this means that they're not yet foreclosed. This is the best outcome for Donald Trump. So well, far. This is given, the best outcome. Hang on a second. Let me just say, let me just say, I want to, I want to amend because you, 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 I want to amend my point. This isn't a, a, the best outcome for Donald Trump would have been that he didn't take the documents with him and didn't have this whole thing happen. Given where things were two or three weeks ago this is the best outcome for donald it Trump. just strikes me so, that he was in a much better position two or three weeks ago he spent the last three weeks talking himself into an indictment so it doesn't take much imagination to consider you how can't this indict him if you worse. can't you can't indict him if you can't use the documents but there but there uh, is something I, I, and the, so we're all predicating this under the assumption that sure the the this is not uh, doj is going to appeal the appeal is going to be dismissed and you're going to have the special master sure i'll i'll, I'll concede that this investigation now continues for the next three, four, five months until and it's we adjudicate not this. And then the DOJ resumes the investigation, at which point he's been talking for the last three, five months. It doesn't strike me as hard to imagine a scenario in which this gets appreciably worse for the former president. And it's also not unimaginable that it gets overturned because Judge Cannon actually could have taken a, a, a less aggressive path in this decision, right? She could have said, we're going to pause. We're going to appoint the special master to look only at attorney-client privilege. But then she added, she could have stopped there, and that would have provided some sort of delay because it take, they've got to submit names. Someone's got to be approved, and they got to start that process. It would have been a delay. 
which I, I agree with Noah. I think that wouldn't have helped Trump because he'd keep going on and on, uh, uh, motor mouthing his his defense in front of the public and the media. But then she added this executive privilege point, which I agree, John. It's it's kind of baffling, and most of the legal experts who've so far weighed in on it are kind of like, huh? Doesn't make sense because they are actually allowing. <laughs> part of the executive branch to continue its investigation into national security risk, but she's saying you can't do it because there is an executive privilege uh, uh, issue at play based on the idea that she assumes some of this might, some very sensitive private information about the former president might be leaked. But the standard that they're setting here is one that I think we've talked about this last week. No ordinary American would ever be allowed would ever be given all of this this you know sort of excessive uh, uh, attorney client privilege thoughtfulness and that's something that that's actually going to be the basis for probably a lot of the appeal is the confusion on executive privilege and the idea that he's being treated differently than than any other citizen this, that's what I don't quite understand I'm not an, an attorney and a lawyer I haven't dealt with the DOJ but isn't that the basis for this entire remanding to this special master because the Department of Justice does attorney-client privilege all the time. They know how to suss out these documents. Okay. I think the idea is that the Justice Department under Biden uh, has, in an unprecedented circumstance, has uh, seized material from the uh, home of a former president. And the question is, what did they seize? And is there stuff that they seized that they were not allowed to seize? And because, and this is where the logic of the decision, at least from the outside, makes sense, because there is a political interest on the part of the of the current administration um, possibly at play here, an independent, objective third party needs to go through each piece of paper and say, this is his you know, this is his receipt for the steak dinner he had. You don't get that. That's that's his personal property. And uh, this is a private letter that he received from somebody. You don't get that property or something like that. Now, you can understand how in a more orderly procedure, if there were such a thing in these circumstances, Trump and the, the Trump people and the DOJ would have sat down. They would have come up with a process. He would have said, well, they took all this stuff from Mar-a-Lago. Uh, as we go through Mar-a-Lago, there's going to be a, an independent third party looking at the paper saying you can have this, but you can't have that. You can have this, but you can't have that. But that didn't happen. And so that's it is logical to say uh, this because it's unprecedented, there needs to be special care taken. But there's another unprecedented aspect of Judge Cannon's ruling, which is that it raises very serious uh, separation of powers issues. A judge is enjoining a current executive branch investigation uh, that the the very idea that says that Donald Trump should have control over those documents also governs the Biden administration's actions as the sitting presidency. And how a judge can sort of intercede in the middle of an ongoing investigation undertaken by the executive branch when these are co-equal branches of government that's one of the grounds on which this may be overturned that uh, never i mean it's like somebody said i don't know again we're none of us is a lawyer but never before in human history has has a judge sort of like enjoined 
the justice has like said to the Justice Department, you can't do your job. You, you're not allowed to do anything until this guy that I'm putting in between you does his work. Um, this is a criminal investigation in part. Criminal investigations require, uh, I don't know. I mean, like you're giving you're giving time for the possible, you know, uh, criminal to cover his tracks and do so, you know. So this is a very weird, very, very weird situation, obviously. And it's all created because Trump took the documents down to Florida assuming that he did this ingenuously and not because he's trying to hide something uh yeah it was unbelievably stupid and his behavior and the behavior of his people is unbelievably stupid but by throwing the investigation into chaos all things being equal that's better for him and what's more let me let me give you the political thing with this all frozen in this weird way Trump's hold on the Republican Party uh, or, you know, renewed hold on the Republican Party that sort of erupted in the wake of the of the search freezes in place as well. Right at the moment when they're starting to see that his centrality in this election may be an unbelievably toxic element that is going to have very deleterious consequences for the GOP and yet nobody is going to be able to say him nay because this sort of Damocles has been frozen over his neck and and therefore you know he needs to be defended or protected or something like that Noah do you does that logic make sense to you yeah sure I don't know which way it's going to go um there's Nobody seems uh, all that interested in making the electability argument right now. But this whole situation, this whole situation that he's found himself in the last seven weeks has taken a real toll on the former president's political brand. He was making a comeback. He is no longer. We have a lot of polling now to suggest that he was competitive against Joe Biden in a rematch. He is no longer. We have a lot of evidence to suggest that Republicans are losing ground politically as a result of these last eight weeks. Uh, in part because the president has become yet again a ubiquitous feature on uh, in the political landscape on television and in our dialogue. Um, and I've started to see some people say that this is this is a problem for the Republicans. Nobody actually wants to make that argument. Nobody wants to attach their name to it, certainly. But the longer this goes on, the more tempting that is. The rationale becomes harder and harder to ignore. The more panic sets in, in the event that Republicans don't recover their lost ground when we start, you know, campaigning in earnest, real debates at the beginning of October, there's an opening there for some enterprising figure. Maybe it won't manifest before November, but the temptation is going to be hard to ignore. I can't, I find it difficult to see this market opportunity that is so obvious. Okay. And no one will take advantage of it. Okay. But Christine, so Noah, Noah makes a very interesting point, which is that Trump, Trump was in good shape according to conventional political analysis, right? Biden is collapsing. Mm-hmm. Trump is looking better. He's quieter, so people are not reminded of the stuff that really annoyed them, even though if you really pay very granular attention to politics, obviously his role in the choice of Senate candidates and gubernatorial candidates across the United States was highly problematic. Um, But I'm not sure that he... But then comes the search, and then... uh, Democrats say, oh, we got him. And Republicans are like, what are you doing? This is like a banana republic. 
Trump feels, I believe, the opposite of what Noah feels. He's feeling renewed love, support, and consolidation from a Republican Party that had started, you know, it's like he's the he's Glenn, like it started to ignore him. Well, but in the media, in the immediate aftermath of the raid, yes, I think that's true. And he's right where he wants to be, which is demanding loyalty, unquestioning loyalty from and and seeing himself as the world's greatest martyr to to his own cause, which is himself. But I'm not so sure. One of the interesting things that occurred over Labor Day weekend is, as the midterm elections ramp up are all the male GOP candidates, particularly running for Senate, who suddenly trotted out all their wives and kids. This was noticeable, Blake Masters, um, you know, uh, uh advance uh, a couple of others who like suddenly the the kinder gentler side of all these male GOP candidates is out there because the GOP is tanking again with middle-aged women and that is because they associate the GOP with Trump again and if you look at these male candidates who met most of whom Blake Masters Vance others who were very Trumpy in their persona leading up you know in certainly in the primaries now suddenly they want to soften the edges which is a kind of rejection of Trumpism they need those female voters to turn out in these elections for the GOP, but these women don't like anyone who's associated with Trump. But that, that, so I'm not sure it's going to last this this his hey, sense of himself. But 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 isn't that also um, in response to the fact that the Republicans haven't found a way to talk about abortion? Uh, yes, post, it's also that. Yes, yeah. yes. But I I really do feel right. like that, especially for some of these Senate candidates, their wives were absolutely put in the background deliberately at the start of these campaigns, and now uh, and they, they're not really talking about abortion either. But they're they got their kids around them. They've got you know a lot of kitchen table conversations happening where the wife speaks direct to camera. So it's interesting. I mean, maybe they've convinced themselves that it's Dobbs. The data doesn't suggest that. We've never had data to suggest that Dobbs was moving the needle to the point where Republicans were no longer going to be competitive in these uh, swing districts races in in, in November. But we had data we have to suggest one, that. Well, we had plenty we of data one, to suggest that uh, that some women were were enthused, women voters were enthused, and young voters were enthused. It wasn't manifesting in in uh, a deleterious effect on the Republican voting position, even in races where they lost, like this Kansas race, for example. You have a lot of people who are willing to split the ticket when it comes to this this issue. It wasn't enthusing voters to the to the point where it would eliminate the Republicans' advantages. Republicans' advantages evaporated after the Mar-a-Lago raid. Fair enough. But I mean, we do have this one like absolutely fascinating piece of data. And it's I think it's very important for pro-lifers to take this in and understand, I think, serious one. I think because we live in our bubbles and we live in our, you know, associative communities, like, you know, people who who are very seriously, you know, opposed to abortion may have real may really not know, except from the media people who feel otherwise and there is pretty startling data on re voter registration numbers all over the place that in the wake of Dobbs women re new registered voters who were women in some cases are up 35 percent and men are up nine percent from you know previous elections um uh, the 10 states that were measured, uh, Kansas, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Oklahoma, Florida, North Carolina, Idaho, Alabama, New Mexico, and Maine, the total number of women, this is from uh, New York Times' upshot, registering to vote in those states rose about 35% after the decision compared with the month before the leak. Men had an uptick of 9%. So what this tells you is not 
is that something changed. Women at least registered to vote. By the way, registering to vote is obviously a necessary, you know, a precondition to voting. Uh, but we do know that, you know, registered voters in midterm elections, even if you register, that doesn't mean you're going to end up going out to vote on election day. Somebody could have, you know, somebody could have set, set a table up you know, near where you were at a supermarket or something, and then you registered to vote that day, but it doesn't mean you're going to turn out in November. Nonetheless, that's a very serious, you know, that's a piece of, it's a piece of information that we need to take in. And Noah, you may be right that, you know, that doesn't mean that Republicans aren't going to work, aren't going to do okay at the top of the ticket in states where abortion is not featured on the ballot or won't be a significant issue on the ballot because there's not, you know, as, as there, as it was in Kansas and as it may, or it probably won't be, but it might be in Michigan, but it's still a thing. Like it's still a, a, you know, it's a Delta, like something changed here that pushed women into registering to vote new, new register, new registers to vote and, um, and has to be taken seriously, which is one of the reasons why you're seeing Blake Masters show up with his wife. Right. It's like, I'm nice. You registered to vote. You're probably more conservative than you are liberal. Look, here's my wife. You know, here, here are my children. Vote for me. Um, it's just a very weird situation. And I do, but but look, the single best thing that can happen for Democrats, as Noah alludes to, is for people in November to believe that the vote that they are casting is a proxy vote for or against Trump. That is catnip for Democrats. That is the secret sauce for Democrats to mitigate whatever damage could be done in the midterms or to stage a shocking reversal of historical trends uh, because of this new, because of Trump represents an unprecedented event in American politics, not just his election in, in 2016, but the fact that he's still the leading figure in his party after his defeat like again was jimmy carter leading party after his defeat was george w was george hw bush a leading factor was gerald ford a leading no they went off somewhere else not you know kind of into the wilderness like they barely even got to be at the in 19 at the 84 convention as i recall I mean, you know, Carter, I don't even know if Carter was at the 84 convention. I think maybe he was. I'm not sure. Um, uh, George, you know, I mean, like, th that's a real thing. And so, you know, uh, to the extent so, but Trump wants to be there. Like Trump, we already know Trump doesn't care. Trump was happy that the George was happy to have screwed up Georgia for the Republicans. Right to have depressed to show his power, he screwed up Georgia for the Republicans, and Democrats won those two runoff seats in January of 2021. If Trump destroys Republican chances in November, let me just ask you this question: Is that, given his ambitions, is that bad for him, or does it mean he is the only game in town? There's no getting away from him. You know, he's like the relative on your couch who will never leave. How do you get him out? He also has a key. Now he's a key, but then it turns out that he secretly bought the mortgage from the bank and holds the mortgage. 
Where are we with this? Like, I, 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 do, I don't know. Like, yes. You got to invite an even more annoying relative that makes him think it's a, the whole prospect's just not worth it. Voluntary. <laughs> what, what was Romney's line? Self-deportation. Yeah. Who's that relative? That's the problem. The problem is the Republicans have Ooh, too it, many really annoying relatives they could invite into this house whenever they want. Just pick hey, one. But, again, like, I, I just don't know that tr- in his own psychology... Trump is like, it's either me or you're all dead. And so, you know, I'm not, you, you might as well go. And there was this story in the Washington Post, uh, I think on Thursday or Friday, about these discussions in Washington about putting Trump on the campaign trail uh, because uh, they got nothing else and they're worried. And so maybe if they can really create some kind of weaponized Republican base that is really crazy and really will go out and really will drag itself over over broken glass that may be the only way to go if independents are slipping away that seems to me to be absolutely bonkers because independents are clearly gettable there's two months and clearly independents could be got back but i don't know if they can again if he's in the news every day the the what all this means for trump's ambitions um i think depends on what sort of reckoning his base is capable of um how many times can can he sink the republican prospects um before they say he's the problem is there any number of times i mean instead they're they're more apt to say um he didn't sink us uh they're afraid everyone else is afraid of him because he's right because he's too strong, uh, you know. This is this is the fight. Where I'm, where I'm, you know, I'm I now am more loyal to him than ever. This is more important than ever. They they keep you know as as Noah has talked about as we've all talked about. This is their complex, you know. So losing tends to to tighten his attachment to his base. Well, and I think that, that that's an important point, because if you look at some of the rhetoric on on the Trump supporting right, a lot of it is remains focused on the Department of Justice, corruption within the deep state. Oh, they're going after him. There was some claim that all of you know 40 years of his medical records were seized in the Mar-a-Lago raid. And they just want to you know, they want to leak all this information and embarrass him. And, you know, they're out to get him. It's that same theme. They're returning to that familiar theme. Um, I I agree that that that's not necessarily going to play the same way this time, but it is all it's what he's got. And Abe's right. Like the the persecution complex is part of his brand. And he was missing that, actually, when he was a little to the side of the spotlight, even when he was, you know, endorsing candidates for races here and there. He was still on the sidelines. Now he's the chief martyr again. He loves it. He loves that position, regardless of the legal and criminally legal jeopardy it might put him in. Well, it gives him two lines of attack, right? One of them is very discomforting for everybody who isn't, you know, sort of like a slavish camp follower, right? Which is the 2020 election and whether it was stolen. And there's nothing you can do about it. And it's in the past. But the raid and this investigation and the idea of a possible indictment, that is the present. So he actually, in that sense, has been given an issue that all these Republicans found found it necessary almost organically to line up alongside him. Whereas they had said, I'm not talking about him. I'm not talking about the 2020 election. Only the 
people who are, you know, insurgent candidates in these primaries, we're talking about the steel. Like there's no, was there were almost nobody anywhere else was talking about the steel. Uh, obviously, it was effective in a lot of these places with the with the Republican base, but um, then this other thing happened, which is the Justice Department. And the problem is, they are trying to get him. I mean, if we're not saying that the FBI or the Justice Department is trying to get him, we could say we don't know if they're trying to get him or not because we don't really know what's going on in their heads. But the very response of what Eric Erickson calls legal resistance Twitter just yesterday to the special master thing is evidence of this, like the rage, the consuming rage that met judge Cannon's decision, which again, like I'm not, you know, does seem to have peculiar aspects to it, but is certainly, it is certainly arguable that in unprecedented circumstances, unprecedented measures need to be taken you know, to protect the rights of of a potential somebody who is being potentially accused, that is not you know out of that's not something that generally speaking liberals in, who do court you know legal analysis would tend to object to, but they're like she's an idiot. Marco Rubio made him appoint her because her mother was from Cuba. You know, Tracy Trump. No judge appointed by a president should ever be allowed to rule in the case of the president, which is interesting because you know, like Elena Kagan was Solicitor General of the United States and then was on the Supreme Court for six years while Obama, while the Obama administration brought cases before the Supreme Court. Should she have recused herself the entire time that she was in that that Obama was in office? I mean, so. They make arguments that are preposterous, but they want to get him, they, and they want decisions made that will make this as easy as possible. All they want is to get him, and and they have all kinds of, you know, you can sort of back the arguments up, which is we deserve the to that get he's him. Done what he's under investigation for? No, 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 no. That you know what? That <laughs> little things like that. No, they want to get him. They don't care about this. What's good about this is that it gives them a means to get him. They want to get him because he's a threat to democracy. They want to get him because he did Charlottesville. They want to get him because he's a crook. They want to get they want to get him because the last six years of their lives have been dedicated to the idea that they must get him and destroy him or America is finished. And and so this is an impediment to their desires. And again, in the weird um Pavlov's dog way, just as Judge Cannon set them to salivating, their response is going to set the Trumpians and the Republicans to salivating. And there's a nice salivation, Pavlov's dog salivation loop that's going to go on. Now, that's a T-shirt right there. I'm just just throwing that in there. Pavlov's salivation, <laughs> salivation loop. loop. Can but you imagine can I... how gross that would be? Just <laughs> drooling dogs. It'll, we'll get our teen market okay. right away with that. But can I, can I add that it is interesting to watch the reaction to her uh, legal reasoning and, and to the decision, because this is the, the, the left-leaning norms. We, we are the saviors of democracy crowd suddenly are, have no compunction about turning on a dime and saying she is corrupt and biased. I mean, immediately this is a federal judge we're talking about here. And, and it is, I think that's useful for people to remember. Uh, even there've been a lot of thoughtful law professors who lean left, who've been trying to parse the details. That's great. And that, that should be where you go to seek information. If you want to see what the sort of left-leaning legal world thinks about this, 
but the kind of punditocracy that the Twitter Twitter types instantly called her corrupt. And that actually contributes to, as you say, John, there is a feedback loop here, which benefits both sides in terms of their entertainment value and their social media uh, presence and whatnot. But it's very, uh, it's not good for democracy, despite their claims on the one side. And and we should add that Biden went around all weekend. He's he's on the MAGA Republicans are a threat to democracy theme. That is clearly what they're going to going to go with in terms of his his speaking on behalf of candidates in the midterms. I have no problem with legal scholars and critics and stuff saying that 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 legal decisions are wrongly decided uh, whatsoever. Like, in fact, I believe, you know, many legal decisions are wrongly decided and that it, one of the checks on bad decisions is, in fact, the idea that your bad decision might get criticized by people and shame you and all of that. No problem with that whatsoever but i think you're right that uh you know go in the other direction and this idea is any objection to liberal actions is a threat to democracy but any objection to you know to things that uh harm the ability of the system to get donald trump if you object to those then you're corrupt because you're just in donald trump's pocket um he doesn't make it easy to defend his rights. And I I don't even know why I have to defend his rights. I, he wouldn't defend mine and did a pretty crappy job of defending anybody's really uh, when he was president. But we are in this very, but, you know, Noah, you're right. I mean, you sort of like, you teased me before about, you know, whether or not in the course of his truth, social truths, he was basically owning up to having committed obstruction of justice. Um. And I think that's, you know, I mean, I, I think it's pretty close. Yeah. But this is another reason why what happened on yesterday, uh, given his improvisatory nature, plays into his hands because at least it slows the possible <laughs> indictment down. And that's how he does things. Like that's a, where he where he got this strategy is from his civil you know, hundreds of civil lawsuits against him. What That's what you do in civil proceedings. You know, you do whatever you can to muck the works up and slow things down because your judge could die and then another judge is appointed or a judge decides or whatever and lawyers change. And then you get another six months. And by the time something is ever heard, like the plaintiff, you know, the plaintiffs might be dead. You know, I mean, it's, I'm not joking. Like that is one of the things you do if you have enough resources uh, as a as somebody who was constantly in civil proceedings, and that's just not the case with it. This is a criminal proceeding with the Justice Department, and that's a whole other, you know, when Trump apparently, I mean, I mentioned this last week, when he apparently tried to negotiate with the Justice Department or have, like, people go and say to Garland, like, can't we just, you know, cool this down or something like that? And it's like, you don't say that to the Justice Department. <laughs> like, they're not, you're not negotiating with with, a you know, a criminal investigation of you like if you committed a crime there's no negotiation but also I mean, the negotiation comes when you admit that you committed the crime then you can plea bargain but also, uh, this is an adversarial relationship they are trying to prove potentially that you have done something for which you deserve to go to jail that's not something where you're like eh, let's just sit down in a back room we'll have we'll have a nice talk and maybe we can find some common ground there also, uh, slowing it down gives him more time, gives the team more time 
to possibly find something, to come up with 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 some element of this that wasn't seen before and change the narrative, change the story, um, give them something to hang on to. Which 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 side are you talking about? Oh, oh, uh, Trump. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But also but also the other way around, which is what Trump is afraid of. Right. That's why. And leaks, what Cannon's yeah. leaks that right. that there's stuff there that they got their hands on stuff there, and look, obviously it's chaos. He's chaos. It's all chaos, and so he doesn't know what they have. He wasn't there. They had some room. They put a lock on it. Who knows what was in that room? And there he was doesn't a great, know what they have. There was a great little uh, anecdote in the Washington Post story over the weekend, I think by David Von Driel, who who noted that Trump has this weird paper hoarding fetish thing where like he wants his, he, he would travel on Air Force One with these boxes full of papers. He would to look busy like some, a reporter who kind of got to sit down with him during a couple hour plane flight was like he didn't really go through the boxes. He would just sort of randomly pull out, you know, in pictures of celebrities and be like, this guy's my friend. You know, it's Michael Jackson or, you know, it's Don King, the promoter, you know. He used it. It was like a prop on a set. Even when he was the president and on Air Force One, his boxes and boxes of paperwork. I mean, everyone, everyone who has worked in an office with someone who always was looking busy, but never got anything done knows that person. Like they always had stacks of crap on their desk. Like, I'm so stressed. I'm so busy. Yet they never met a deadline. Like it really did remind me of a kind of stage set that he made for himself that traveled with him from place to place as president was kind of just funny. But it did then make the idea that these boxes are a mess of all this crap totally reasonable to, to imagine. I mean, you know, and here we are. It's now uh, we've been po- podcasting for 40 minutes and we barely mentioned Biden. And that's the whole point of this. We're not talking about Biden. You mentioned Biden, you know, double continuing with the with the theme of the of the Philadelphia, you know, uh, Elmo on fire speech speech. Uh, thing and uh and he's he's doubling down tripling down quadrupling down on it because it's working for him um and uh you know it's not like the only i mean i think we're in a weird situation go to a gas station this weekend right gas is down right so it's you know down a dollar something like that so you know, gas is now under $4 a gallon. Groceries are still really expensive though. Okay. I, I got to say the grocery right. bill is not dropped. <laughs> right. But I mean, but I mean, this is the big question. So like you, are people feeling better or not? Uh, I, I don't think there's any evidence that people are necessarily feeling all that much better about, about inflation. Um, and inflation is one of those things I'm not sure you need to remind people of by giving speech. And there is no Republican speechifier like Biden, right? He's there is only Trump. But I mean, there's no one who is not, the you know, who is equal to the president. Obviously, McConnell is a not an orator. And Kevin McCarthy is a boob of the highest order. Um, and so no one there's no one there to kind of like summarize the Republican argument against Biden and the Democrats. But we're going into heavy campaign season, right? We're 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 heading into heavy campaign season, and there are going to be a lot of debates. And what would Republicans want to talk about? How people are feeling about the country and the economy, and what do Democrats want to talk about? Abortion, and uh, and Trump, and uh, right now, um, and who asks the questions at debates? 
members of the media. What are they going to want to talk about? Abortion and Trump. State after state, place after place, right? Everywhere there is a really hotly contested election. Arizona, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Georgia, Oregon, uh, Washington State, Colorado. I don't know. I mean, New Hampshire. We don't even know what's going to happen in New Hampshire yet. Who's Who the candidate's going to be in New Hampshire. So, uh, Biden's got these two lifelines. One is that he's directing the attention of the country to the extent he can to Trump. And the media are going to help him with that. Had none of this happened this summer, all Biden, all the Democrats would have had to do was respond. They would have had abortion, but they would have had to talk about the kitchen table stuff and the, and the mismanagement of the country stuff. And there's just another topic. The topic is is there. Um, how, what, what, what can what can Republicans do? Well, so this Trump or Biden speech, this disastrous Biden speech on Thursday night, <clears throat> according to this Politico investigation into it, uh, began being planned in June, uh, as early right. as June, well before the Mar-a-Lago raid. Um, that this was the Democratic strategy was to exhume Trump from his political grave, prop him up, and then yell at him. Um, so that was always going to be the case. And it really, this is their best strategy, as evidenced by how well they've done in the wake of Donald Trump's reemergence on the national stage. But they risk also ignoring every every major issue that is relevant to American voters, not just the economy, not just jobs, which we've now lumped into one one particular uh, item in polling, uh, polling on priorities, which is annoying, but also crime. Um, national security. I mean, the sort of stuff that actually makes government work. Wait, know. who who's missed? Who's missed? Democrats. Democrats. But they don't want to talk about it. Of course, they don't want to talk about it. But somebody's going to look at Republicans can't talk about the fact that you can't purchase something that you used to be able to purchase for the same amount of money a year ago. Then they don't deserve to win a single race in this country. Somebody's going to have to talk about kitchen table issues. Well, that's, I don't I think, know why Republicans are. There's a piece brief. I brief this is digression. Yeah. There's a piece by David Leonard, which I'm going to write about today in the New York Times. Talks about a proprietary uh, morning consult poll that was done for um, for the Times, and ultimately the headline is that voters believe that Democrats handled COVID better overall than Republicans to the tune of 45 to 32 percent. You go down into it, and there's little, you know, this they did this better, they did that better. Democrats are a little more overbearing. Republicans were too, were not protective enough, not practical enough, all that nonsense. Um, but I hope they take his advice. I hope Democrats run on their, this record because they can't really run on the record. It's retrospective. They would have to, the argument that they have to make is we can't go, but we can't look backward. We can't second guess what needed to be done in a tautological form. We can't talk about what needed to be done because it needed to be done. I think Republicans have a really great opportunity here to perform a retrospective, remind voters what they experienced in the last couple of years. And then also, because a lot of this is a response to what they believe to be, at least this is Leonard's analysis, what they believe to be Republican and Donald Trump-led um, lackadaisical, a lackadaisical approach to the threat posed by COVID, just a little, little less um, apprehensive about it than they probably should have been. That's an easy place to go to, to say, well, look, we were all operating under the same assumptions. We all operated under the same limited amount of data. 
the, the, we did exactly what Democrats did in the very beginning of this thing. And it wasn't long before they were calling Ron DeSantis a mass murderer for doing what Democrats eventually relented to doing. Uh, and remember all the social upheaval, remember all the, the uh, school closures and the mental health and throwing money out the window. We really don't want to look back on that. We really don't want to have a full accounting of what we did here, what you did here. It seems to me it's like a, a really easy one to to jump off of and pivot off of to a place that gets you past Donald Trump. It is retrospective, but it's but retrospective a in a way that gets you to move forward beyond this perpetual pandemic that we still in many ways are living under. And there's a theme, though, that they can draw from all of that. But this morning, console poll, one of the the term that was absolutely uh, affiliated with Democrats handling of COVID that was not so much with Republicans was the word overbearing. There is a thread there between what Democrats wanted to do during COVID and what they continue to want to do now that that we're supposedly post-COVID. First of all, because some Democrats are still acting as if we're not post-COVID and some municipalities are still you know, fear-mongering about it. Not as many, but still. But this idea of Democrats are overbearing. When they get power, they want to control more and more aspects of your life that compromise your freedom as an individual. That's that's the Republican message. They, I, I agree with Noah on that. I'm not sure there's anyone savvy enough to make it. I, I, I think there are plenty of people savvy enough to make it. I think this is another element of why Trump is the gift that keeps on giving to Democrats, which is that one of the reasons that people are maybe reminded of the fact that Republicans deserve some blame for their handling of COVID is the centrality of Trump in the conversation in 2022. Were he not central in the conversation, the question would be Biden's been president for 20 months or whatever it is. You know, 600,000 people died. Uh, there were all these, you know, this, that, blah, 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 the other thing. Like there, there would be no reminder was like, well, the Republicans were in charge from March of 20 until, you know, until Trump left office in 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 January of 2021. It's been Biden's show ever since. How's it going? How has it gone for everybody? Was it really good? But then Trump's there. So you get this reminder of 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 the discomforting way, unless you were already in Trump's camp, the discomforting way that that Trump handled COVID. His inconstancy, his, you know, weirdness, the, you know, the press conferences, the behavior, the dis uncomfortable behavior of the people behind him could, could, you know, could Republicans or could Republican candidates, you know, like hit a silent majority of people who are like, this was all awful. And it wasn't just the disease that was awful. It was the way you handled the disease that was awful. Yes but it would be a lot better and easier for them if the Republican guy who didn't handle it well wasn't at the center of the national political discussion and the Republican who did handle it well, who is the future of the party, theoretically, you know, the DeSantis type, um, were somebody you could point to. And he's like, you know what? And the guy who was coming up and maybe our nominee, look what he did. He insisted on keeping schools open. He insisted on keeping businesses open. You know, he made it an individual choice of every business, how to handle masking and all of that. You know, he he protected nursing. He 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 did what he could do to protect people in nursing homes, unlike in the in the in the blue states and all of that. And yet that conversation is stymied. I want to mention one interesting thing before we go about if we're talking about COVID. Um, and that is. Uh, the release of the new uh, booster shot to uh, 
apparently next week uh to uh you know to, to do something about about omicron um i've been boosted i've been you know i've had my four shots and uh totally happy to have done that and i felt you know when i when i got covid when i got uh, you know in december i felt nothing so i haven't gotten omicron uh but obviously i could <laughs> because omicron eludes uh the vaccine as we know um which was not true of delta or the you know or, or the original um but uh the dispatch this morning has an interview with paul offit paul offit is a uh pediatrician and one of the great uh, one of the great men of the 20th century by which i mean that he uh he helped promote and create the rotavirus vaccine uh which uh, rotavirus uh you know causes uh uncontrollable diarrhea uh and killed 600,000 children a year worldwide uh until uh, they finally got this vaccine, Rotatech, uh, up and going. Uh, that was Paul Offit's work. Um, hundreds of people a day uh, uh, around this, around the planet Earth, are saved uh, because of Paul Offit's work. So he is a he is a great man, and he was very COVID uh, hawkish, very, 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 very COVID hawkish. And he tells the Dispatch today that he would not have approved uh the deployment of the booster because there's not enough data um that is very striking to me uh and i think it's very notable that he is saying this i'm trying to i want to find the quote so that um yeah so the bioinstruction has purchased 171 million doses and um while experts are generally confident about safety, they have less data about efficacy. We don't have any real data on testing that shows that this, theoretically, this booster, which uses the same technology as the other thing, is supposed to work, but we don't have full data. And Paul Offit says this, I think you need more evidence that this vaccine is of value as compared to just getting the ancestral strain. I just don't think mouse data are enough. Do I think they're going to be less safe? No, but there has to be a certain humility that comes with new products. Often argues the FDA and CDC should focus on boosting higher risk people with the updated shot rather than the general population as a whole. So when I read that, I think, what's going to happen in the next two weeks in, in sort of like in the world of the COVID, you know, whatever COVID frightened um are, am I going to get an email from my my kid's school saying uh your kid must get the updated booster um because I'm not sure I'm going to do it I mean maybe I, I don't know I mean maybe I'd do it maybe I wouldn't do it I don't know I'm not a, a, so far uh it seems to me kids don't die from it I'm not get you know I he's fine <laughs> I'm not going to do it. What are they going to say at my my daughter's college? Are they going to say she must get the booster? Uh, she's a girl, so therefore, uh, there is no evidence. There, there is some tiny evidence of heart problems in 
young men her age uh right this is a weird myocardial information but it's a very small uptick but nonetheless but she, so she's a girl so really but i mean why would they do that like if paul offit is saying eh, i don't know so it's going to be an interesting test and that in itself may re, may be something that reignites and ignites a very discomforting conversation because we are seeing people because of what's going on here vaccinating less we have this threat of a, a, a reignition of mumps, which is a very terrible thing if that were to happen. I don't know. So what do you guys think? Christine, what do you think is going to happen with your kids at school? Well, I'm I'm the so I had one kid who who got a booster shot because he had to in order to do uh, to volunteer for community service hours. I didn't want him to right. get it because I I weigh the risk. Why introduce even a minuscule risk of a heart issue in a young man when the risk of anything uh, from COVID for him, a healthy young man, is so is almost zero. So he he I he went ahead and got it so he could do these community service things, which in D.C. is required for a lot of these kids for their community service hours. My other son has not gotten a booster and I will not allow him to get one uh, unless there's some evidence presented. And the pediatrician has guided us on this. This is, I went, I went to the pediatrician and said, look, you know, there is this risk. They are young men in that high, higher risk group, even if it's minuscule. And she just said, if they don't have an underlying condition that puts them at higher risk for complications from COVID, there's, there's really not a reason for it. I think this is part of, this is what happens when trust uh, declines. It, it distrust in the, what they're telling, uh, parents they need to do for their young children with regard to boosters is coming out of the experience of all the public health trust mistrust over the last couple of years. And I actually think we'll really be out of COVID when all of our public health officials start talking honestly about weighing that risk, because there's no reason to say everybody should get boosted. That is the wrong message. It's not true. Everybody does not need to get boosted. They need to tell the public, look, we, we did these, we were really pushing vaccination for the first two doses. And we're glad we did that. That saved lives, et cetera, et cetera. Now we're in the new post-COVID era and we have to decide, is this like the flu? And are these shots like a flu shot? Or is this something different? And these shots are different from a, a, a yearly influenza shot. That's not been explained to people. So they go in search of information and they sometimes find bad information and they go with that. But there have been thoughtful people like Offit and others who have raised concerns about the booster regime and whether it's motivated by something other than public health concerns. And I think that's legitimate. So my as I as I as I think through this, what I think is the public health atmosphere, Paxlovid, right? Paxlovid is the is a treatment to alleviate the symptoms of 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 COVID and those who get COVID. So there is apparently, I don't know if the evidence is overwhelming, but it's pretty serious that Paxlovid is a really good treatment if you have not been vaccinated. But if you have been vaccinated, either it makes you feel terrible or it alleviates symptoms in a way that makes you think that the virus has gone away and then you have a breakthrough. The rebound, like, yeah, like rebound. Biden got, yeah. Right. Uh, in my 92-year-old father's case, he took Paxlovid, he felt terrible. Uh, Fauci said he took Paxlovid and it made him feel terrible. My dad had had all the boosters. Why are we having that conversation? I mean, I'm gonna, I'm not again. I'm not sure that there is a that there is definitive proof of this, but it's because 
you can't do that because then you what you would be saying to people is it's okay don't get a shot if you get sick we'll give you paxlovid and they don't want to say that because they still want everybody to get vaccinated but now omicron until we have proof omicron evades the vaccine Maybe the booster will help, but Omicron not only evades the vaccine, but but the vaccine is not effective in preventing spread in Omicron. It was effective in preventing spread in the original and in Delta, but not in Omicron. So why is there a public national interest, if we're now in Omicron, in making sure that the vaccination numbers hit 90%? There actually isn't. I mean, just logically speaking, you want people vaccinated so they don't spread the disease to other people, not so they don't take the risk of getting COVID themselves, particularly if there is a treatment like Paxlovid. So we have now totally lost the thread. Like we're no longer, we are now, the the vaccination is now a, a, a signpost. It wasn't a year ago and it, it, whenever it was, uh, and it is now. It's like a. It's like a, an ideological signpost. A member of a. You know. It's like a, a badge. Who you are. What you believe. How you think about things. And there would be no reason not for you know not to transition to a, to a more modest understanding of what it is that is going to happen in the wake of, of the last two and a half years, which is get the booster don't see what happens or you know if you get sick if you're not if you're not vaccinated what i i don't know it's just it's weird the all the conversations just wait just wait for the fall wave um it's going to get worse there's the 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 prospect for the type of conversation john that you suggest we need um will completely shrivel up well, Noah, let's talk about that politically. So there's Biden, right? The last thing Biden would need, despite David Leonhardt's, you know, the advice from the proprietary poll in mid-October would be for the CDC or whoever to start getting hawkish about COVID again, right? Politically? Yeah, I, w- I would think so. Uh, so. I just find it difficult to accept the premise here. Um David Leonard's premise that Democrats should run on their COVID record because the idea here that you will have some profound enthusiasm and gratitude from Democrats who appreciated, not loved, appreciated the regime that was adopted under these very extraordinary circumstances to prevent mass death, which led to a societal breakdown. You all know my views on that. Um, But the idea here that that enthusiasm, that affection, that gratitude would outweigh the enormity of the uh, alternative response to that, which is hostility, frustration, anger, resentment, and uh, a sort of arrested development here. Uh, There was a lack of uh, accountability for what happened there, and it was very much uh, in Democrats' interests in uh, late 2021. Uh, early 2022 to sort of move beyond that and just memory hole it, just forget it. The idea here that they would go back and that re revivify this issue and make it re- relevant and resonant again for voters and that somehow they would benefit from it just strikes me as a lot of moving parts that I don't think are lining up. 
More okay. people are going to be enthused yeah. to vote against the COVID regime than for it. Yeah, so so the question is, what is the COVID regime now? Because the question either, is, can either, Republicans, I'm sorry to interrupt, but can Republicans, you know, thread a single needle here? And this one seems like a really big open basket that you can sink. Well, remember, there is no national. So there is no national Republican race. There are dozens of races. There are, you know, I don't know, 50 competitive House races. There are these, I guess, seven or eight Senate races. There are some gubernatorial races. So the question is, what what can these individual candidates do to benefit themselves? And, you know, and 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 over and in the Republican case, do something to reverse this national momentum that seems to be heading the Democrats' way. So Leonhardt's yeah. thesis here is that um, Republicans can't make hay of this because if they were to uh, try to perform a retrospective on COVID, they would inevitably end up having to speak to the craziest elements of their base, who they just, uh, Leonhardt disregards many of whom are vaccine skeptics and just generally inclined towards conspiratorial thinking, and that will get them further into the weeds and further alienate them from the rest of voters. Maybe, but that would just be sinking yourself into this online morass where this, we don't have very many polls to suggest who is vaccine skeptical. And some people are like sort of on the spectrum there, but we're not talking about more than 25% of the American public to say nothing of engaged voters. We're talking about a very small, narrow band of people. And if Republicans focus on them, which they're perfectly capable of doing, perfectly capable of doing something incredibly stupid and self-defeating, but that would be incredibly stupid and self-defeating. But is, I mean, not to, not to sort of like belabor this point, but Americans have been making sophisticated choices in that regard, right? The uh, vaccine was approved for kids under five and nobody is getting their kids vaccinated under five. And why aren't they? Because they're right not to. They shouldn't. It was stupid. It's stupid to have, it, it was approved based on a an outmoded idea of, of terrified parents needing to have vaccines in order to go on with their lives. But it turns out that an overwhelming majority of parents, and one assumes then, then an overwhelming majority of those people since 70% or 75% of the country has had at least one shot or themselves have themselves been vaccinated or saying, but I'm not giving it to my kid. Nobody, no, 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 no kids are dying of COVID. But it's, and it's, I'm not doing it. And so that is a sophisticated decision. That's I'm getting it, but I'm not giving it to my kid. But not all parents get that decision. I got to say it's used as a as a blunt weapon against parents in Head Start programs, for example, which are going to continue to mask young children if because the whole idea was we have to mask until everyone's vaccinated. So it, it's not a 100 percent free right. choice for people who feel like they're being slightly blackmailed to get their kid vaccinated so that the kid who's learning, whose speech is, is impaired and his learning is impaired by having to have a mask on all day. That's not really a fair choice for parents to have to make in Head Start programs. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, this is this gets to your point, right? You both of your points, which is over the overbearing nature and the limitation of freedom and the idea, by the way, that, you know, this is re it's really great uh, to be activist because um, when you're in schools and not just on COVID, but on DI and on gender and this and that and the other thing, because um, kids don't have rights. They have or they have very limited or they have compl com complexly limited rights. And so you can work your will on them. 
you know, you can make all these rules and uh, we accept that in general, but like this um, hunger to use this, to, to use this as a, as a, as a tool and a, a cudgel for different kinds of social points and social theories is driving a lot of people. Uh, we just don't know how many, we don't know how serious, but you know, are driving many people to, to a, a new kind of implicit understanding of what statism is and why it is to be, you know, objected to. Anyway, uh, we got to run. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow for Abe, Christina, No, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning. <laughs>